0: Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is a partnership between the Department of Criminal Justice and the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Department of Criminal Justice. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics related to government. Some may be surprising and some may not. So please enjoy. Welcome to episode 26 of the Let's Talk Government podcast, The 9-11 Terrorist Attacks, Media and Politics. I'm joined by Dr. Amelia Pridemore from the Political Science Program in the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato. I was an active peace officer at the time of the attacks, and Dr. Pridemore was a copy, a copy editor for the student newspaper, which was a jumping off point into professional journalism. So she covered the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks and the aftermath for many years. Um, and just a reminder, the 9-11 terrorist attacks occurred 20 years ago. So let's start with what was the impact of the media coverage as the attacks were taking place? What do you
1: think? Just uh, one of the things that really comes to mind was just the impact of the visuals. Um, You know, so many people saw that second plane hit live as it happened. Um, We really hadn't had, up until Vietnam anyway, uh, that sharp visual impact as to what was happening you know, with war, with, uh, you know, with American tragedy. And then you think about the evolution going up to 9-11, you know, 24-hour news, like we saw at the Gulf War. Well, okay, so, so think about it. There was, there, you had two combined forces at the same time. You had um, visuals and then you had 24-7 coverage, wall-to-wall cameras glued on the World Trade Center the whole time. And what happens? All these people see that second plane hit live.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
1: everything blow by blow, you see it. you see the t- towers fall when they fell. Mm-hmm. Um, overall, um uh, just some of the visuals that happened um really shook the country to the core to its core even more so than any attack probably ever would have.
0: Yeah, I was one of the ones that watched the second plane hit live. I was in a training and you could like hear the, the air or leave the room. But it also really brought into focus that it wasn't an accident because that was the speculation that maybe it was an accident that the plane had hit the first tower because there were many people that saw that. But that really brought into focus it's not an accident. And then you start hearing about the Pentagon has been attacked and that they've lost a plane. So, yeah, that immediate first 24 hours of news coverage really like put it right up in your face. The United States was being attacked. So 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 we've got visuals. So what kind of morphed? You know, that first 24 hours is all about the destruction that's going on. What kind of morphed out of that?
1: Yeah, one of the things I I I just thought was at that moment, like you know, right when it happened. um, Talking about and when I talk about immediate, I'm talking very very immediate. Um, I saw not only on television and you know through the grapevine, but I also just personally saw, you know, people at their finest in journalism. I mean, you had people who were literally running towards the towers as they fell to be able to bring that video, those images, and just that, just bring the story home, make people feel like they were there and feel the impact of what was happening. Um, you know, people, uh, there were journalists who literally risked their lives to cover this. Um, just even on the local level, I knew of people who were working sometimes 24 hours or more. Um, you know, there were people I knew who were putting out multiple editions of a given newspaper at one time, people who stayed on the air more than 24 hours. Um, you know, because they they just had a sense of duty. We are here to keep people informed let them know what's going on, especially in a crisis mode like this right now. Let's give them the facts. And, you know, there were people I knew who, you know, seems like they went a week without a shower and mm-hmm. in, in just trying to get that, uh, just trying to get the story out, and, but get it right. Mm-hmm. And not only that too, but you had, and this was very debated at the time. Um, one thing that you had to do, under all of that pressure was you had to make sure that you were acting with the appropriate sensitivity Mm -hmm. while trying to show the appropriate impact. So one thing that I, that just, you know, I myself sometimes had to do when I was cutting copy, um, or deciding what to run sometimes, um, you know, there were debates as to whether or not video or images of people jumping to their deaths from Mm -hmm. the towers should have been aired or should have been printed or not. Um, There was a, um, a one newspaper that used a term that's generally used, uh, generally uh, thought of as profanity for, uh, for their one word headline um with with a picture of the second plane hitting and that was debated because it was thought to be well this captures what americans were feeling versus okay like seriously what are you doing (laughs) right right (laughs) um you had to you had to do a huge balancing act and under some of the god-awfulest pressure ever um in terms of just getting it right and, uh, you know, you mentioned the moment the, the second plane hit. Um, so, so one of my, one of my friends who was already, he had already gone pro, um, by this point, uh, he moved on from student papers and, uh, <laughs> he was working in his, um, uh, his newsroom and they had already all but put together the day's paper and they were going to put it, uh, send it out when somebody was watching tv and said hey a plane just hit the world trade center what really and they all go the they all go to the tv and then he says the second plane hit we watched it live he said he said we all said oh my god the world is going to change forever we tore up the front page and we got to it mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and you know, when you brought up the point about the jumpers, you know, most of the footage I have seen has been very respectful, where they pull back to the wide shot, and they were consciously doing that. Because if you wanted to sensationalize it, yes, you could have zoomed right in, but they were being very respectful of people that had, had the choice of no choice whatsoever to try to, to just get out of the burning building. I also recently saw um, a documentary that showed people, journalists, photojournalists that were pulling people into safety, you know, as the building was coming down and the white cloud is coming at them, you know, get in here, get in here, instead of worrying about the shot so much as helping people. And I think it's important that people remember, you know, journalists are people and the videographers and photo photographers are people and they really did show that, so.
1: I noticed that too. Yeah, it was sometimes too, it's like, uh, it's it's like this sometimes uh, objectivity is, Uh, is uh, one of the, you know, objectivity does matter in media, believe me, it does. But at the same time, it's sort of like moments like these are ones where you have to really consider the fact that you are a human. Mm -hmm. And likewise, consider perhaps being more of a human, in not only what you're doing behind the scenes, but also what you put out there. Um, so while I wasn't on the ground in New York city or in Washington, DC, or in Pennsylvania at the time of nine 11, I was definitely on the ground, um, in the hurricane Katrina aftermath in Louisiana. And I remember just, you know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, when somebody was crying, I gave him a hug because, you know, what was I going to do? Was I just going to stand there like a robot? Right. Um, and that's sometimes uh, one of the things that you have to do in, in that line of work is, um, consider just how far your humanity, uh, will be allowed to go. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a lot, it's extremely difficult it's, and, and you have to know how far you're going to let your humanity spill out onto your pages or not. Um, and it's, um, there, there, there were moments, you know, a lot of moments during my, during my career, not just 9-11, not just Katrina, not just the Iraq war where I just, you know, sometimes I had to, you know, let, uh, go home and just sit in silence for a while and just try to shut out the day, you know, (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's important to have your humanity. So, all right. So we know that there was a lot of immediate impact, but we also know that a big political machine started moving as soon as uh, President Bush got notification that the plane had just flown into the towers, were under attack. So let's start talking about the media and politics from that perspective. How, what happened? Did Was the media able to run free and do their normal objective reporting or were there some constraints that were put on them?
1: so the constraints were really they weren't legal but they were a mix of a sort of a stage that was set ahead of time in terms of who was in control of the media like uh, in terms of corporate ownership and likewise there was a lot of political dialogue, and also just the public at large, you know, every, the average citizen, quote unquote. So one of the things that really set the stage even before 9-11, but it really had an impact on the media environment during immediate aftermath. Um, and, and you know, today, one of the biggest policy pieces that came about not too f- terribly before 9 was the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Um, so this was something that's far less emotional than coverage of 9-11, but it definitely set the stage. So basically what the Telecommunications Act of 1996 did in a nutshell was it eliminated a whole lot of ownership um, restrictions on media outlets namely on how many outlets radio television print etc how many a given company could own how many period um, how many of them could be owned in a single market um, the idea the the reason why, there, there were restrictions on such was the greater idea of democracy and a marketplace of ideas. If the theory was, um, that if you had more than one voice out there, meaning more than one company's perspective, mm-hmm. um, in the public sphere, you had a more democratic discourse. Um, But what happened with Telecom Act of 1996, as well as a lot of other media deregulation that happened before and after, um, was that where ownership limits were repealed and repealed and repealed, you had the situation where so, so few could own so much and where so few could own so much, so few controlled the overall message. So, I mean, just to remind our listeners,
0: the role of the media in a, in a healthy democracy is to be a watchdog and mm-hmm. to hold your government accountable. So if you have an owner that owns all the media in a geographic area... I mean, how many different news uh, reporters do they need at that point? Or how many different news programs do they need, Dr. Prygmore?
1: Well, for one thing, I know just personally from uh, working at uh, work, you know, knowing and working with a lot of people who have been affected by these buyouts, what often happens is the first thing that happens is, especially if two outlets are bought by the same company and they're geographically close, they'll combine staffs. Mm-hmm. They'll say, OK, we're just going to lay off this many people or we're just going to get rid of the entire staff over here. Um, so, yeah, they'll, they'll literally combine staffs to save money um, and then have, I mean, some now in, in the digital age, it goes as far as uh, somebody in Tennessee can be doing page layout for a newspaper in Illinois, um it's it's gone that far now but yeah one especially if they're geographically close though they start they start absolutely cutting staff so not only do you have one owner but actually they start literally cutting down the number of people who are creating content
0: so you could have one one point of view that is covering a large area on multiple stations or multiple channels I know that we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about yeah, media yeah. outlets, but so let's let's kind of steer it back towards the nine eleven. I mean, what were the things that set the stage for our media after nine eleven?
1: Well, like like I mentioned with the with the with the buyouts and and uh, with so so much uh, airtime and but, um, and so much message controlled by so few, what happened was there was a greater ability to put the lid on anything that was deemed to be dangerous, unpopular, unpatriotic. Um, So, so one thing that happened immediately was that um, basically the media went by and large um, into a sort of, it was, it was just this, you know, okay, sure. Um, whatever, whatever you say, um, whatever you say, Mr. President talking about the Bush administration. Okay, sure. We'll put the flag on the front page. Okay. Um, we're going to go to war. Great. Um, there was, there was no questioning of anything, but the thing is, is if you did act like the appropriate watchdog and ask questions, the thing was, is, the public at large, much less your employer, would absolutely have your head. Um, and this happened in uh, mainstream media, this happened in entertainment, mm-hmm. and some people, especially in the entertainment industry, lost their careers over this. Oh. Um, how, did, how did that work? How did the entertainment industry lose their careers? Well, one uh one that well they eventually made a comeback in a big way, but um one big one again this goes back to the ownership example uh was the Clear Channel list was first. So Clear Channel Communications had literally bought out station after station after station before 9/11 happened. Mm-hmm. So what happened was they distributed a list of songs um right after the attacks that they deemed too dangerous to be, and too, or too insensitive to be playing on the station at that time. But a lot of the music was considered to, you know, some of the choices were considered to be really strange, um, such as uh, the song, I Fall to Pieces. It was considered to be a little just you know some of the choices were just considered to be too literal and uh-huh. then the other thing was is a lot of the artists who's um who who wound up on the list were ones that were known for having views that were counter to the Bush administration such as Rage Against the Machine whose entire catalog was placed on that list mm-hmm. um and and some of it was just really strange and the thing is is Clear Channel denies that this was an actual policy that they made people follow
0: mm-hmm. but when
1: the president when one of their when their top executive sends this out to all of their outlets you know you know, oh my gosh the boss said this well right? <laughs> right so so most of them did follow that list so what happens is is when you have so few owning so much okay instead of you know one radio station and Nebraska banning the entire Rage Against the Machine catalog, you've got this huge blanket blackout mm-hmm. of all of this stuff. But I think for one of the big ones was especially when entertainers, journalists, etc., really asked the question or even criticized uh, the Bush administration. And some of, their, uh, some of their policies, particularly the war in Afghanistan and especially the war in Iraq. Um, big example is the Chicks, formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. Right. Um, yeah, they basically voiced their opinions against the Iraq war. What happened was basically, remember station after station? Well, just one conglomerate banned the Chicks. And over and over and over again, um, and it was actively encouraged too mm-hmm. by not only these media outlets but also the public at large. You know, having v- special events where they bulldozed the band CDs. Wow. Um, but the thing, so the thing was, is you know, if you even thought about asking a question like, okay, is this is this really a good idea? Um, you wound up getting absolutely tarred and feathered by not only people in the political sphere, other media outlets, but also um, just the public. Mm -hmm. Because one thing I always, I always uh, said is, you know, right after 9-11, especially, you know, first you're just in tears, but then you want to blood. Right, right. And I think when, when you have that huge desire for blood, but somebody saying, you know, uh, was, was the government of Iraq really involved in this? You know, is this, what, what's this about the uranium? I I really don't know. Oh man, you were done for. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, just in terms of other public figures, uh, Valerie Plame and Joseph Wilson. Right. Um, it was it was extremely dangerous to be asking questions when they really did need to be asked, especially when you're talking about matters of going to war. Um, just like right now, with what we're seeing with Afghanistan, or what right. we see with Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people are asking questions about what. happen to lead to what we've seen in Afghanistan? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: These questions were not asked in 2001. (laughs) Well, you know, and it's really interesting that you bring this up
0: because Senator uh, Barbara Lee, when she voted against granting the president the powers to use a legal authorization to use military force three days after the 9-11 attacks, that got buried. And I am sure because most of the media outlets couldn't touch it without pretty much imploding. It was just one lone senator dissented and that was it. So you never really got to hear the reasons why, which is kind of part of that watchdog role. But on the other hand, I mean, they were scared to do that because your bosses are telling you no, and your your government's telling you don't talk about anything uh, that's not patriotic and we'll deem what's patriotic or
1: not. right. And, And in terms of deeming what's patriotic or not, what did air... And what did get printed uh, was uh, was really questionable too. Not only was it um, a real regurgitation of a lot of, of talking points, but two big ones that really come to mind are the stories of Jessica Lynch and Pat Tillman. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yes. You know, they 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 were, you know, the way that their stories were spun by the United States government were you know it made the perfect human interest story that the the not only the media but just the public in general sometimes we gotta we can't just blame the media sometimes we gotta you know look at ourselves in the mirror and you know and ask of what happens with um you know chicken and the egg yeah yeah who who is influencing who right But uh, Jessica Lynch, um, she even said when she had to testify out in front of Congress, she's like, this whole story was false. They made me out to be, quote, as she put it, little girl Rambo, when she's like, I didn't even fire a shot. Mm -hmm. Um, Pat Tillman, who um, is, as some of you, as some of the listeners may or may not know, was an NFL player who quit the NFL after 9-11 to uh, become an army ranger, he was killed in Afghanistan. And the narrative spun was that, you know, he was fighting the enemy and and it turned out that he was killed by friendly fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and And his family were, you know, once they found out, they were just disgusted that, you know, their son, their brother was used as this propaganda tool basically um especially after you know regardless of of how he died i mean the guy died serving uh serving his country
0: mm-hmm. and
1: gave up an nfl career to uh, to um you know after 911 and the thing was is that was used precisely because you know oh wow you know, this guy who just had a heck of a story behind him, wow, what, now that he's gone, what could we do to really draw people in, mm-hmm. and a, uh, a lot of the narratives around, you know, the P- Pat Tillman story, the Jessica Lynch story, um, they've often been blamed as, you know, at that time, Really pumping up the public into supporting the Bush administration's policies in both uh, Afghanistan and Iraq.
0: And for our listeners that don't know the Jessica Lynch story, she was in an ordnance um, unit in the army, and their caravan took a wrong turn. Basically, went wrong turn and in into more hostile territory. Uh, several, I think it was nine, uh, in her caravan were killed, and several were taken prisoner. And she is a very petite, uh, blonde, very American-looking female. Um, she was a she was rescued by special forces from a hospital, and there was a huge narrative. I mean, they called a press conference as they were coming back to the base with her about saving her from being a prisoner of war. Uh, and that, yeah, that she had fought everybody off. And yeah, the, diff- the narrative that comes out much later is so they took a wrong turn and they went into the wrong area and she was captured with some injuries. So it is interesting to see how that was played up. I had totally forgotten about both of those until you mentioned it. So all right. So who started doing the watchdog role of the media first after 9-11? Who, who got brave and started questioning this first?
1: Some of the uh, some of the people who really got brave and started questioning this first were actually satirical comedians. You know, uh, most famously, some of them were uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, mm-hmm. um, the ones who did the news parody shows. And the thing about um, Stewart and Colbert. So Stewart uh, was parodying news programming. But the thing was, is he showed this kind of a skepticism, namely about the Iraq war, but also a lot of what mainstream media was doing. Like um, one example was that he showed a thousand times was he showed some talking points that came straight from uh, the White House press team. Mm -hmm. And he says, surely the, uh, surely the, uh, the press questioned this and he showed, and he showed you know footage of reporter after reporter after reporter from so many different news outlets parroting these things word for word um, and also just really dug into the whole political dialogue like for example when um, when um, one of one of Bushs sec- Scott McLendlin, uh one of Bush's press secretaries um, left his job <laughs> it was. It was um, John Stewart did this uh, bit with one of his correspondents where uh, they said, what happens to Scott McClellan now? Well, he goes through the uh, traditional thing that White House press secretaries always have to do when they leave, and that's uh, being cleansed of all of the absolute bu- uh, bull that they have had to digest and spit out for however long that they were working as a White House press secretary. Um, okay. So, so, you know, there was this, there was this, um, the thing was, is, you know, kind of like what I say about satire. And we've talked about that on this, uh, on this podcast before, you know, when you laugh, why were you laughing? I always because, say,
0: yeah, why are you laughing?
1: <laughs> Because you're, you're like, oh, my gosh,
0: that's so true and uncomfortable. And why do we put up with it? <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, Colbert took it to the next level because um, as some, maybe even some of my uh, younger students may know, um, Colbert got his start playing a character uh, on the old Colbert Report, which came on right after Jon Stewart's Daily Show. And the character he played was of a... You know, one of these um, conservative pundits, you know, a Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity type, um, and really, it was a critique on a lot of the political communication. You particularly saw a lot of pundits, and mm-hmm. even the graphics and whatnot were a were a total parody on such. You know, tons of American flags, eagles flying around all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. And he even called the content that he was putting out truthiness. <laughs> truthiness awesome. uh-huh. and and some have some media scholars have criticized you know the the rise of uh Stewart and colbert um and their growing of prominence during this time as you know our descent into infotainment but to be quite honest with you in a lot of ways they were the ones who really started taking the watchdog role up a notch mm-hmm. um And the thing was, I think they had a little bit of an advantage of them uh, with them versus mainstream media because they were able to kind of deflect some criticism, be like, oh, look at me. I'm fun. I'm just telling jokes. By the way, (laughs) watch what they were doing with the White House talking points. Wasn't that so funny? Why are you laughing?
0: Right. Right. Well, I know we could spend hours (laughs) talking about this, so why don't we do some, what are some of your closing thoughts about the impact of 9-11 terrorist attacks and media and politics here, as we carry forward here to the future?
1: It's sort of like, um, so, you know, the media did get its groove back, particularly when the Iraq War went south. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember it was controversial at the time for NBC News to use the term civil war around um, when, you know, around the mid 2000s, mid to late 2000s, when just the Iraq situation had just gone to pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, And eventually it did get its groove back in a way, especially when the Iraq war really went south. Um, The problem's been is that with the constant erosion, particularly in media regulation, this resulted in buyouts, buyouts, and more buyouts on top of that. We have literally lost a lot of the viewpoints that we would have that would provide a check on it. So we started out with this, with these heroic journalists. We wound up in this point where we were just kind of parroting talking points and not really asking questions. Um, and then when we start, by the time we really started asking questions and we really started playing that role, and we actually, we, the public, allowed journalists to do this, all of a sudden, all these newspapers start folding. Right. These places get bought out. And kind of like what they say about democracy, especially after January 6th, mm-hmm. um, you don't know what you have until it's gone you don't know what kind of an asset you have until it's gone. And one of the assets that the press is for us, a free press, is that watchdog role. But so much of that kind of went down.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And for a while it was recovering and recovering and recovering, but the uh, financial and regulatory situation never let it fully recover you don't know what you have until it's gone. And I think a lot of people are noticing that right now.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Primor. I always love having these discussions with you because it <laughs> helps remind me of the role of media in democracy. And you're right, you don't know what you're missing because you can turn on the news now and it probably doesn't matter which station you're hearing similar things. So thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. All right, thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash letstalkgov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode, and thank you for listening.